Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. It's been a while, but Abby Epstein, a former guest, is making a return appearance on CWCW. For those who haven't met Abby yet, some background. Chicago, 1992, Abby formed her own theatrical company, directing several plays in the Windy City before moving east to work on Rent and the Vagina Monologues. Then in 2004, Abby began making movies and three years later joined forces with actress Ricky Lake. The pair made several documentaries, including the award-winning The Business of Being Born. It examines the way the American healthcare system deals with childbirth. That was followed by Weed the People, which explores the use of cannabis for children diagnosed with cancer. Well, the pair has joined forces once again, Abby the director, Ricky the executive producer of The Business of Birth Control. Sixty years after the pill revolutionized the emancipation of women, the business of birth control examines the complex relationship between hormonal birth control and women's health and liberation. The documentary traces feminist movement to investigate and expose the pill's risks alongside the racist legacy of hormonal contraception and its ongoing weaponization against communities of color. The film, which weaves together stories of bereaved parents, body literacy activists, and femtech innovators, highlights a new generation seeking holistic and ecological alternatives to the pill, while at the same time redefining the meaning of reproductive justice. We got lots of ground to cover, so let's get this conversation started. Abby, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me remotely today from Manhattan. <laughs> Thank you, Sandy. Thanks so much for having me. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. So talk about, no pun intended, the birth of the business of birth control. How come and why? Ricky and I were in the middle of our, another movie called Weed the People, mm-hmm. um, which is a Netflix film that we spoke about a few years ago. And at the same time, an author named Holly Griggs-Spall sent me the galley of her book, um, called Sweetening the Pill. And she, you know, had just said that she was sort of in the throes of making it into a documentary and they were kind of stalled. And she just thought it could be like perfect material for Ricky and I, you know, based on our past films. So I basically read the galley of her then unpublished book on a flight from New York to LA landed, went to Ricky's house and said, you know what? I I think this is like our next movie. They really impacted you. Yeah, it was really, really eye-opening. And I thought, wow, you know, this is kind of a vertical in feminism and feminist health movement that just hasn't been explored. You know, in the same way, I think that when we did The Business of Being Born, you know, much of that film was more controversial 14 years ago than it would be today. It sort of felt like with this book and this topic, you know, it almost felt like somebody needs to break the levy. And I Hmm. imagine in 14 years, we'll also look back and say, oh my God, I can't believe we were putting all those 12 year old girls on synthetic hormones, you know, and keeping them on for decades. Like, I have a feeling, you know, the tides are going to turn with this as well. So, yeah, I mean, the book really woke me up. It also led me to make a lot of personal connections 
with my own birth control journey. And I think that's really what's so fascinating. I think if you talk to any women or anybody who menstruates, whatever, you know, gender, they will have a story, you know, they will have like a personal kind of odyssey of trying to figure out how to manage fertility. Mm -hmm. Um, And many of the stories are the same, you know, Um, people have varying levels of success, but many of the stories are, are the same in the sense that there's a real dissatisfaction with the options. Um, there are no options for uh, men. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there seems to also be a real sort of lack of informed consent, I would say, uh, around the prescription of these products. What do you mean by that? Informed consent on whose part? For the patient, you know, I think that most people are getting a birth control prescription. I mean, now basically getting it online, but you know, most people, they might have uh, a short appointment at a clinic, like a Planned Parenthood, or even in their doctor's office. And, you know, they're generally asked a few questions like, do you smoke? Perhaps if you're overweight or you're a smoker, um, there could be some risks with, um, blood clots or strokes. That that was sort of the gist of what people heard. Nobody, I think, and even people you find who've, you know, been on birth control for decades, they really don't understand the way it, it actually works in the body. And I think one of the big areas of side effect is the mental health side effects. And that was really a lot of what Holly focused on in sweetening the pill, because um, she had had really devastating uh, mental health side effects from a pill called Yaz or Yasmin. And she wasn't able to connect what she was experiencing to the birth control pill, you know, until she actually went off the pill. Was what she was going through, and I use the term in quotes, typical? Or was that an aberration? I think she had extreme depression and anxiety that was triggered, but I I do think that um, there is a mood effect. A mood effect can, is very common with these products. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think that practitioners warn girls or women about the potential of a mood effect, which is quite dangerous, especially when you're dealing with teenagers. Because mm-hmm. teenagers are more likely to have ups and downs anyway. Right. Um, and then they may go on an antidepressant or they might start treating that depression and anxiety and not realize that the underlying cause was actually their contraception. And I think that, you know, now there have been studies done, at, you know, which we cover in the movie, which really make the correlation between anxiety and depression and and use of hormonal contraception. So I think that, you know, people can be affected by it in more subtle to more extreme ways. You know, Mm -hmm. one of the scientists in the movie, um, Dr. Sarah Hill, she wrote an amazing book called This Is Your Brain on Birth Control. And, you know, I remember when I was talking to her, she described it as when she came off the birth control, it was almost as if her life had been a two-dimensional drawing. And then suddenly when she came off birth control, it sort of went 3D and in color. 
And suddenly all these textures in her life came back, like listening to music or putting on makeup or, you know, things that she used to enjoy. The changes can be very, very subtle. And I think that what people don't appreciate is that sex hormones do not stay in your reproductive area. Uh-huh. Sex, sex hormones are in the brain. And so they're fluid also. They're all over the body. Mm-hmm. And, and they, they interact with the environment to essentially help the brain create the person that you are. So your hormone levels, your levels of progesterone, estrogen, testosterone, those hormone levels, you know, define to a large extent your personality. And when you start playing with them, things are, are inherently going to shift. And so I, I, I think that that's one of the more major misconceptions. Even recently, they had an article about the IUD saying definitively that the hormones from the IUD do not stay in the cervix or the uterus. They circulate all over the body. There's a real casualness about the way that these drugs have been prescribed. And I think that Ricky and I both feel that access to all of these contraceptives is totally essential and we are 100% pro-access, and we want people to be able to go and get on whatever type of contraceptive is going to work for them. But we also don't think it's fair um, for people to be experiencing side effects that they're not warned about, or they're not able to connect to the product that they're using. You know, that's, I, I think, Really, the main message here is it's not about necessarily, you know, shutting down options. It's actually about increasing access always, but it's about having better options and more innovative options. How come I didn't know this? I think very few people know it. Most people are completely blown away by the film in terms of what they didn't know. Um It's interesting because, you know, there's a whole kind of history of feminism in the early 70s, the feminist health movement, which was sort of founded by Barbara Seaman, the doctor's case against the pill, Mm -hmm. and Alice Wolfson, who is in her 80s. And um, Alice Wolfson and her group, what they actually did was they um, went to the Senate hearings. There were Senate hearings in the 70s that were called the Nelson Pill Hearings. Now, I never knew about any of this until I started making this movie. So it was Senator Gaylord Nelson from Wisconsin, and he was encouraged by reading Barbara Seaman's book, The Doctor's Case Against the Pill, to actually hold hearings, um, months of hearings, to really hear from doctors and really determine you know, whether this pill was safe or whether there were some side effects that were not being revealed to the public and and risks. So Alice Wolfson and her, you know, feminist group, they went and sat in on the hearings because they had all had side effects on the pill and were told to kind of ignore it. And they ended up interrupting the hearings and coming every day and getting thrown out. And it got enormous publicity. And 
essentially, you know, what they were protesting was that only the drug companies <laughs> were really allowed to speak in these hearings and no women who'd taken the pill were allowed to testify. And had reactions to taking Absolutely. And not even female physicians were testifying. You know, it was That's just drug crazy. companies. It is. And so they got a ton of press and they actually were the ones who were responsible for getting that packet that goes in, you know, the pill, the medication, that little warning packet, which of course is kind of a ridiculous packet. And we talked to that in the the film because it's a pamphlet that you have to fold out and it, you know, is way too much to read and nobody can understand it. <laughs> but, um, you know, that was sort of their victory. And so for me, yeah, this was like a whole piece of history that I'd never heard about. But what's chilling about it, Sandy, is that what those women did in the early 70s what they uncovered and what was said if you if you look at the transcripts of the Nelson Pill hearings which Bernie Sanders office made available to the public if you look at the transcripts they 100% knew all back in the 60s about all of these side effects that women are still experiencing today that's they just knew about crazy all of it. it is it was such a well kept secret because they didn't want to jeopardize sales of the pills. It was pharmaceutical interests. And, you know, also I think the population control movement was very powerful back then. Um, and they had a lot of lobbyists and they wanted the pill for those reasons. And then, you know, we we talk about this racist uh, legacy of birth control, um, which is tied into eugenics. And again, there was, you know, a real push in kind of keeping certain communities from not reproducing. And being left in the dark. Exactly. And that that has continued, especially for women of color, you know, up through the 90s and through today. And there's a horrendous history and legacy of exploitation um, of women of color, obviously going back to slavery and, you know, modern obstetrics being developed, you know, with enslaved women going to the actual FDA trials of the pill, which they actually held in Puerto Rico. And, ah. you know, they had about 100 uh, Puerto Rican women take this pill for a year. They had no idea what the side effects or risks were. There were actually five deaths on the trial. And who picked the women to be on the trial? Well, of course, they knew that these women were sort of clamoring for any mm. kind of fertility management, and they knew right. that they would never be able to do this trial in the States. Yeah, so right. they found willing participants, right? Again, so exploiting women of color. We can go back to sterilizations that were happening in this country at massive rates and then go from sterilizations in the, you know, 40s and 50s to the 90s when, you know, you also had these birth control devices like Norplant um, that was pushed, pushed on women of color and they were really injured by it. They suffered terrible side effects and then it turns out nobody actually knew how to remove the implants. So uh, there's just so much, you know, injustice, I think, that's been done in this space. And, 
you know, I think controlling women's bodies and controlling women's um, reproductive lives has always been, (laughs) uh, you know, something that, um, let's say, the state, you know, has had an interest in or um, Or certainly has had a hand in. Did you know where you were going when the genesis for this film, the idea for this film came into being? Because oftentimes that does happen where you think you're going to take this path. And then the next thing you know, you're veering over here because I didn't know this. I wonder how surprised you were by the trajectory of the film. I think when we started the film. Which was what year? Oh, you wouldn't believe me. (laughs) I think we did the Kickstarter in 2015. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, it's a hell of an undertaking. So I think we had Holly's book, Sweetening the Pill, we had read. And then there was an excellent, excellent Vanity Fair piece by Marie Brenner that was about the Nuva Ring and a series of uh, young, healthy women who experienced blood clots and pulmonary embolisms, um, some of them dying because of this product. So I think when the film started, we met a lot of those families in the Vanity Fair article, Mm -hmm. and they introduced us to other families. So there was definitely a big story from the beginning about the parents who'd lost their daughters and this kind of mission that they were on to get more transparency in the labeling of the products more warning labels on the products so that this would not happen to other young people. So that was always one thread. And it's, again, you know, so overwhelming, Sandy, like those stories and those parents could be like their own movie. Mm. But we didn't want to limit the movie to that. We just wanted to show the, the extreme. And then I think when I started talking about the film and interviewing people, then I recognized that women of color have their own story around this that needed to be told in a different way, that they couldn't be just sort of swept up with white women Mm. um, because they Mm. have not experienced this in the same way. So there was this marginalization. Did that surprise you? I mean, I guess it surprised me when a lot of times if I'd be talking about it and, you know, maybe a Black woman would raise her hand and say, oh, you know, this whole topic is a very particular wound on the Black community. There's a wound there. And so I didn't know that, you know, mm. I didn't I didn't realize how specific it was. I didn't know about the trials in Puerto Rico, for example. And the potency of it all. And the potency and the mistrust. I knew so much from my work in the birth community that there's big issues with maternal health and outcomes when you compare women of color to to white women. Um, birth, you know, outcomes or I guess, you know, so I, kn- I know, of course, that existed. I knew about racism and misogyny in medicine, but I didn't, I didn't know about this very, very particular history. And it's sad, you know, because even certain organizations like Planned Parenthood that really exist to like serve women of color, Mm. um, there's mistrust because the founder was Margaret Sanger, 
who was connected to the eugenics movement. I thought really important to kind of cover that angle, you know, and and look at that, you know, from their their position. So I think that kind of evolved. And then, um, you know, there was also, I think, a real, like, since we started making the film, I would say, there's been kind of a huge, like, surge in this, what they're calling femtech sector <laughs> of the market. So femtech, the term was coined actually by a woman who's in our film, uh, Ida Tin. And Ida Tin, she developed an app called Clue, which mm-hmm. is a period tracking app. Um, but now uh, has uh, FDA approval actually to be used as a form of birth control. So femtech was a word that Ida had coined, and it really relates to, I think, these kind of huge gaps in women's health that nobody's filling. Um, You know, we know that for many, many, many years, for example, women were not part of drug trials, right? because they would get pregnant or they thought their menstruation cycle would throw off the results. So for many, many years, all of these clinical trials were were only done on men. And so I think, you know, that's one example, but there's many examples, you know, in which the female body is sort of depicted as malfunctioning or other or some kind of, you know, defunct version of, of the male body. And so femtech has sort of emerged to... I think fill a lot of these gaps and it extends to breastfeeding, to period tracking, to birth control, to fertility. I mean, there's so many areas where women are just so underserved. So it's a really important sector, you know, and I think it's, it's fantastic. I love it. Every time someone tells me their 15 year old daughter has a period tracking app, (laughs) Um, because that means that, you know, she is connected to her body and her cycles in a way that we were not, you know, of my generation. Abby, is something like this ubiquitous? I think so. I mean, it's quite popular with the advent of the smartphone. You know, I think that the thing that I love about the period tracking apps is, you know, this kind of body literacy you know, can sort of take place in a way that um, is out in the open. The whole like pro-period movement, which was founded in a big way by a young woman named Nadia Okamoto, that pro-period movement, I think, has also connected. It's very connected to this shift in thinking about birth control and I think that's why our film is resonating um, so strongly right now, especially with like Gen Y and Gen Z. Mm-hmm. Because like, you know, as you said, Sandy, I mean, essentially the pill that you took or I took is essentially the same product that is being offered right now. It might be repackaged. It might have a different delivery system, but it's the same concept. It's the same biotech. You take a pill that shuts down your ovaries, 
that essentially puts your body into like a temporary menopause. Mm -hmm. You don't ovulate, you don't release eggs, and you put these two synthetic chemicals that are sort of imposters that circulate in your body instead. And I think that that notion for a generation that's incredibly woke and ecologically minded is just not going to gel. You know, they, this is a generation that is avoiding hormones in their food that is avoiding endocrine disruptors, plastics, anything toxic to the environment. And this is not something they want to put in their body. Hmm. And in spite of that, my guess is that your audience might be watching this movie with their mouths open. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. And you know what really shocked me when we premiered at Doc NYC? We only had one screening like in the theater, but I remember at the end of that screening, there was a guy who had been like, you know, shooting for the film festival and he was like filming the Q and A's and stuff. And he just like grabbed me at the end of the movie and just said, Oh my God, thank you. Thank you for making this. I can't believe this movie. And then again, there was another like, you know, middle-aged man in the audience that grabbed me and said, my wife needs to see this tonight. Um, How can I get this movie? And so that, I was sort of shocked by that. You know, I was Mm, thinking, oh, mm. that wasn't, that wasn't really our audience, but they, they were really shaken by the movie and really wanted to like get the information out. I'm so struck that we're talking about birth control over which we have no control, you know, even in this <laughs> day and age. And I think also the disconnect is so stunning to me. It feels like everything around like women's health has this to some extent, you know, but the disconnect, like Ricky and I did an interview with somebody at like Psychology Today or some psychology podcast around Doc NYC. And at the end of the interview, I mean, literally this man said to us, do you understand that for 30 years, this is all I do? And I have never in my life heard that there was a connection between hormonal contraception and depression. How can that be? Why are we at ground zero in this day and age? Why is your film important to see when we should know all this? Oh, absolutely. We don't know any of this. And I think one of the reasons that we're at ground zero, which we show in the movie, is it's not very different. I really hate to say this, Sandy, but it's not very different than the opiate epidemic. It's Mm. not very different than, um, you know, what the Sacklers did to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. It is really about profits over, over people. But it's not getting the same press before you two came along. Well, yeah, but I think there's also a reason, you know, I I think that if you look at who the advertisers are in the media and why this message isn't getting out, it's super obvious. And even Ricky and I have experienced it trying to do press for this movie. Like a couple months ago, Ricky was on The View and they really couldn't approve any clips from the movie. I am telling you, we were picking the tamest clips 
And they were like, nope, we can't show that. Nope, we can't show that. Nope, we can't show that. Give me a couple examples of that. I'll tell you why. Because, you know, legally to them, they said that they would be making a medical claim. But I think the truth is, and we all know this, that they're happy to make medical claims on all these, you know, talk shows and morning shows when there's a pharmaceutical sponsor behind it, right? They're happy to make medical claims. They're happy to have doctors on making medical claims. But I think we had a cute little clip about um, something we talk about in the film, which is this t-shirt sniffing study, basically that hormonal birth control kind of changes who you're attracted to. because it it changes your uh, pheromones. Really? Yeah, yeah. Like it, it, it impedes your ability to sniff out a mate, which has been very important for human beings in an evolutionary way because you're basically smelling your partner's genetics, for lack of okay. a better word, you know, and they're, you're making sure that they're, kind of compatible with you, right? That the offspring will be strong and healthy. So that's why human beings have smell as part of their Mm -hmm. attraction. So anyway, we had a cute little clip about that and they were like, oh, no, no, no. And you know, it was no medical claim. It was just like, there was this study that was done about smelling (laughs) t-shirts. So, you know, they're, they're very, very scared of this. I think this topic is so scary. Not only because of the pharmaceutical money and the pharmaceutical company's collusion with the FDA um, around, you know, the labeling and making sure that the risks are kind of suppressed so people don't get scared off it is just, you know, think about it, Sandy. It's like there's been no innovation in this field, right? So if if we're coming out and saying birth control isn't solved, <laughs> that's really dangerous thing to say, right? That's like super threatening because then what are you telling people? They're going to use like condoms or, you know, they're going to use some of these more natural methods or, I mean, there's one non-hormonal birth control, which is the copper IUD, but that's still a complicated birth control because it has to be, you know, surgically inserted and you're, you're, you know, it's really only marketed to women after they've had children. So I think, you know, it's an unpopular message, <laughs> but I think if we don't start talking about it, then nobody is going to develop options for men or more holistic options. And it's crazy. Like we have the biotech. I mean, look what we can do in this day and age. Right. So I think there's a whole amazing like future in this sector where I think we, we can solve this and we can upgrade the options from basically what they were in the 1960s and 70s, which is what we're still using. That struck me also because I I wanted to talk about options because, and then to quote what I had said earlier, that there's this new generation that is seeking holistic and ecological alternatives to the pill. Now, what does that mean in a non-70s hippie thing? What are you saying with that? Well, I mean, I think that this generation you know, first of all, they don't necessarily want to outsource their fertility management to a pharmaceutical company, right? They want to have 
be in control of their fertility in a way that feels like they are actually in control. So there's a book called Taking Charge of Your Fertility by Tony Wexler that I think was a game changer for, you know, thousands of people. And that book explains what we call the um, fertility awareness-based methods. It's an observational method of charting your body's fertility signs to understand the six days a month that you are potentially able to get pregnant. And I think that system, the fertility awareness-based models, have had a real resurgence in popularity among young people. And some of the femtech that we're talking about has been created to like work with that method. There's products like Daisy and like Natural Cycles, um, which a lot of women are using now. And I think that what it does is it sort of, you know, takes the fertility awareness method and and updates it for like a digital age, you know? So one of the things you have to do, let's say with fertility awareness is take your temperature every morning. So they've figured out with these apps and tools a way to take your temperature and then that gets entered into the system and then it tracks you. And so it just alerts you to like, these are your you know, green days where you could get pregnant. These are your red days where you can't get pregnant. And I think that right now that's, you know, I, I think that we're seeing a kind of a real resurgence in the popularity of those methods. And that may be because, you know, there, there really aren't any like healthier So nothing's options. changed in a sense that while there may no. seem to be more options, where's my optimism with this? No, it's the same option. So if you're looking at the pill, the patch, mm -hmm. the shot, I mean, there's 800 brands of pill and, you know, different types of IUD and different types of a patch. And they have now an implant you put in your arm, but it's the same biotech. It's the same system. It's just repackaged for different models of delivery. So whether you're implanting something in your arm or inserting something in your cervix or taking a pill every day, it's it's essentially working off the exact same biotech, which is shutting mm -hmm. down your ovaries and suppressing ovulation. I think that there's things that we learn. Like remember when like the gut brain connection first came out and people were like, oh my God, mm -hmm. that's crazy, you know? Now I think it's pretty established, right? That there there is a gut gut brain connection. I think that now there's more understanding of the role of ovulation and hormones in the menstrual cycle and that ovulation, you know, releasing an egg every month is not just about making a baby. That there are benefits to ovulation, huge benefits to ovulation. The ovulation is how the body makes its hormones. It's how the body makes progesterone and, and estrogen. There's all these long-term benefits to ovulating. 
prevention of osteoporosis. It affects the heart. It affects the lungs. It affects the breast development. But what we've done is just like turn that function off and just think there'll be no consequence. So I think as sexism is losing its grip and there are more, you know, maybe female identifying scientists and doctors coming into the field, you know, menopause, as you know, is getting Mm -hmm, so much mm -hmm. attention right now, right? Nobody's ever studied menopause and it's like the new hot thing. You know, there's just more women in the field of science and medicine than 50 years ago. But I, but I think that it's almost like Sometimes I feel like the whole female anatomy and body is just sort of like maybe only been 30% studied. We're just lacking research into so many diseases and conditions. Um, A lot of celebrities have come out recently, like Amy Schumer came out talking about endometriosis. I mean, this is something that affects one in 10 women. It's completely devastating and it's treated with the pill. And the pill is not a cure for endometriosis. That's what they've done to women. It's just sort of thrown the pill at them. So who do you think needs to watch this? Oh my God, everyone needs to watch it. Everyone, everyone, everyone. Like I can't think of anybody who wouldn't watch it because it's, you know, if you're a parent, If you have a daughter that you have to deal, you know, with these issues, I think anybody who menstruates, but even people who don't menstruate, you know, like the men I was telling you about their reactions to the movie. I think it's so important to see the burden um, that women have been carrying for all these years, essentially, you know, compromising their health um, to make sex convenient. Mm. Who benefits the most from this kind of movie? We touch on the options lightly at the end of the movie. Um, We are developing like a whole masterclass series to drop in to the options um, in a deeper way. But I think right now, you know, you have to really advocate a lot to learn about what the options are. And it's kind of like if you don't want to take these hormonal products, if you don't want to uh, take them, then you're going to have to be more thoughtful right now because there isn't a kind of uh, brainless solution. The other options right now are either going to be barrier methods, um, whether that's you know some kind of sponge, cervical cap, condom, you know, and those barrier methods obviously have to be used (laughs) correctly Uh and, you know, something you have to take the time to do or fertility awareness-based methods, which again, you still are going to need some kind of barrier method on your fertile days. Um, And then the copper IUD, uh, the Paragard, which is a a non-hormonal IUD, which a lot of women are extremely, extremely happy with. But again, there's a lot of misinformation. Nobody understands that there are two types of IUDs, that one is hormonal and one is not hormonal. So only the person who's done the research and goes to advocate in their doctor's office to say, I'd like to try the non-hormonal one, you know, is going to end up with it. Again, you cannot acknowledge that your film is a public service. 
Yeah, it is, you know, and I, I, I hope the film is really like a gateway. I mean, I think the film is just the beginning. The film is kind of like blowing the lid off all of these things that you didn't know in more of a broad way. It covers a lot of ground. And then, you know, on our website, we have a massive resources page with books and links and websites and all different ways that, you know, you can improve your body literacy, uh, which I think is, you know, really the most important thing because, you know, the film is just sort of like opening a door, right? It's just like the beginning of a journey. Yeah, but who knew that there was a room? Right. That this, there was a door opening into a room. Exactly. Yeah. Should this be shown to young women in schools? A hundred percent. We already have an educational distributor, so this is going out to. And you think, and this will happen? Oh, it's already happening. Yeah, they already like they already making the DVD. <laughs> so it's going into libraries, that's, universities. Oh, no, that's fabulous. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Are you and Ricky still very focused on this issue, which is huge? I mean, do you see a part two to the business of birth control? We're launching more business of birth control, which is going to be this body literacy masterclass. So it's going to be a nine part uh, series that really dives into all the different um, topics that we cover in the movie. So that's sort of our contribution to like ongoing education is to say, Hey, come join our community Mm -hmm. and learn about all these things. And what about geographically? Are you trying to get into the parts of the country that are just not exposed to this and just uh, have always been pushed off to the side? Well, I mean, just to give you an idea, you know, we did a sneak preview screening um, online where we just put the film online for 48 hours for people to watch and share and, um, just to grow our mailing list and get word of mouth going. And we had 20,000 people register oh my God. Oh my in God. 48 hours. Um, a lot of them from around the world. And so we just saw that, you know what, this is the kind of movie that as soon as you see it, you like tap someone else and you're like, oh, that person's got to see it. I got to have that person see this. My mom's oh, got to see this. My sister's got to well, see this, huge. you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what we've noticed. Well, that's happened with most of your documentaries with you and Ricky. Yeah. That there's a common theme. You're providing this public service. What irons do you have in the fire? We, I have a couple of projects that I'm, I've got in development that I'm not, can't share them quite yet at the moment. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. definitely have we have some things cooking. But docs, mostly docs? Uh, mostly, yeah. Docs and mm-hmm. series, yeah. You know, the work that you've been doing, and I believe I even said this four years ago, is just so important to expose and to explain and give people such food for thought to walk away empowered. And if I might be deifying you and Ricky, well, so be it. You know, I think women are are so underserved. And I think, you know, that's why, like we said, we've been seeing all of this new uh, capitalist drive toward menopause and creating menopause products and menopause awareness, you know, because I mean, I, for the most part, menopause women have just been left to like 
flail on their own. Um, <laughs> and be totally miserable. True. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, menopause is just not particularly sexy. Well, I think that's changing. You know, I think the, the face of it is changing. And I think that it's another thing that's very, very poorly understood. Perimenopause officially starts at 35. You know, that means that you can have women in perimenopause for 15, 20 years before menopause even kicks in. And yeah. Wow. 35. Perimenopause is a big topic as well that nobody really talks about. And of course, you know, women are having children later and later. So they're having children in perimenopause. But I mean, generally, you know, it it feels kind of like there's also a little bit of a reclaiming and an awakening happening around this idea that women sort of shrivel and die, you know, that they just sort of Mm. like wither away after, you know, menopause and there's, there, you know, they have no Mm -hmm. more sex life and no more, you know, and it's just incredibly untrue. So I think it's a big myth around menopause that's sexist and misogynistic and, you know, comes from a lack of, again, studying women's bodies and, and understanding their, their hormonal arc of their life. Well, it would really be interesting to make a film about men and their hormonal issues <laughs> and make it as if we cared. <laughs> right. Abby, thank you so much for the work that you and Ricky are doing. And the films are just so empowering, powerful, and just so necessary. And it's just wonderful that they're out there to educate. The two of you have really walked the walk and talked the talk. And that's what's just so great. Thank you so, so, so much, Sandy. I really appreciate you taking the time and diving into it. Well, there's always room for part three down the road, and I hope uh, you'll keep me in your orb and on your list. You know where to reach me. Thank you. I will. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. 